Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, audience and listeners. This is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, we are doing a podcast and a webinar as well uh, because I have uh, an awesome presentation uh, from Jeff Adler, who's the uh, vice president of Yardi Metrics. Uh, Yardi is one of the largest property management company in the nation, and they have a lot of data behind them. And Jeff is going to provide uh, a lot of insight, which is going to give us state of the union of multifamily industry. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much, James. So let's go back uh, to last year, 2019, uh, where we had a really good podcast. I believe that's podcast number one, right? So where we call it State of the Union of Multifamily for 2019. So this time is 2020. So let's say a high level recap. Uh, what has changed from 2019 to 2020 for the multifamily market? Well, you know, in one regard, not much. Okay. In another regard, a whole bunch. So if you kind of recall the beginning of 2019, uh, from an economic standpoint, we, there was a fair amount of uncertainty. The fourth quarter of, of 18 was kind of a, uh, a swan dive. Uh, we had an inver- you know, we had a big inversion of the yield curve. Uh, the uh, Federal Reserve had kind of raised rates. Stock market had kind of gone into uh, a significant correction. And 2019, we really weren't sure whether the economy would continue to be able to grow. Uh, would the would the Fed take the corrective action necessary, uh, and would the economy be able to the economy would be able to navigate some of the trade tensions, and and basically the continued health of the multifamily industry uh, would it you know, kind of still kind of advance you know at at a good clip or you know what was the state of supply so there was a, there was some uncertainty around some of those co- kind of components um, and so the pictures a bit more clarified from the macroeconomic standpoint. The Fed did cut rates. The yield curve stopped its inversion. It's flat again. And the economy, you know, kind of advanced forward. You know, we had the 2.3% growth over the course of the year. The job formation was it has been still been quite good. Difficulties with supply have kind of stretched out that supply delivery uh, curve. Uh, and uh, occupancies have have uh, performed well. Uh, uh, overall rent growth across the country has been around 3%, uh, with fewer markets perfect, performing poorly. Uh, some of the hot markets kind of beginning to tamp down. So the one, I would say, negative component in, in all of the multifamily world is the regulatory backlash uh, that occurred from rent control legislation in uh, Oregon, uh, New York, and California, which has made those markets less attractive compared to others. But the basic outlines of the economy are still quite good. I just came back from the NMHC conference um, in Orlando. Uh, it seems like forever ago, but I think it was only, only last week. Uh, and there the mood is you know, very good, lots of capital, uh, lots of activity going on. People always worried about, you know, are things kind of like richly valued, and, and, and they are. 
But if you look at the spreads between cap rate and the 10-year, still pretty good. You look at the debt availability, still very good. Uh, more capital is flowing into the multifamily industry um, from uh, not only outside the United States, but inside the United States, uh, with uh, multifamily being one of the two top asset classes for for investment. So when you look at the, the demographics continue to be on a positive, you look at the supply, which we do not think will be out of hand. We just finished up a new supply forecast by by property almost, um, taking into account a lot of the, the, the cycle time data we have on deliveries of projects. We think that we'll actually, as a country, deliver a tad less than the 300,000-odd units uh, that were delivered in 2019. Um, and we are, in generally speaking, um, housing shortage contrasted to the housing surplus that we had before the, before the crash. So it's really a really good time to be in multifamily. Uh, it's almost so good we kind of pinch ourselves and saying, you know, <laughs> oh, we don't want it to be this good. There must be something bad. Well, what's the horrible thing that's going to happen to us? We're just having a hard time dealing with good news as an industry. But I'm, you know, I'm cautious. I continue to be cautiously optimistic. Um, I don't see a a recession at least until 2021. And quite frankly, with the way in which the economy has kind of come through this, I'll call it a mini manufacturing recession, didn't really affect the services industry, did affect manufacturing and sectors exposed to trade. With us actually coming out of that, growth prospects for GDP are actually higher uh, this year than they were in 2019. I don't really see a recession until 2021, and one could argue very effectively 2022. But but certainly we have another good year ahead of us, and and inflation is not out of hand in any respect. Uh, and because inflation isn't out of hand, there really is no pressure for interest rates at the short end to to move higher. And there certainly is no pressure on the long end. I mean, interest rates for the ten year are back down to below one six, and you know they were at one nine not be, just before this kind of coronavirus uh, scare. But if you look at that. Like if there's no inflation, then you're not going to see kind of big cap rate, big uh, interest rate moves. You're not going to see big interest rate moves. You're neither going to see movement in cap rates or movement to uh, associate with a recession. It's really quite positive. I think the biggest issue, you know, if you're a multifamily investor right now, is it's hard to find deals that aren't very richly priced. You will have to be very prudent with your. Uh, underwriting and with your capital investment, the uh, in the competition for assets is quite extraordinary, particularly in cities adjacent to California and the Northeast, where capital is fleeing those areas. Uh, I, I heard I, I've been speaking to folks in Phoenix, where the market for multifamily is so amazingly red hot uh, because of all the, Calif- the Californians trying to move their capital out. California on a gradual basis. So uh, I think that the biggest challenge right now is to prudently underwrite and to find opportunities that make sense if you're going to overpay. And the fact of the matter is, if you're in a competitive bid situation and you won, you overpaid. Now, the question is, uh, will the market kind of bail you out? Are you in a rising tide? So that the fact that you overpaid at any particular moment doesn't really matter because the investment overall will perform well. Uh, as the market and your value creation strategy plays out. So long answer, James. I, I'm pretty optimistic 
about where we are uh, in 2020. So what would cause the recession in 2021-2022? As I've been saying quite a while, this is a classic way of thinking about, I've had this, by the way, this slide is the same slide I've had up since Trump was elected in November of, 20, of 2016, all right? So same, same, same slide, okay? Uh, things are a little more positive than I think they were even in November. The, the, the balancing act has always been the pro-growth elements of the administration's policy compared to the anti-growth elements of the administration's policy. Pro-growth came first, tax reform, regulatory relief, executive orders. The anti-growth came later, uh, immigration control, uh, which has restricted the amount of labor coming into the United States. Uh, it has created a labor shortage, which has boosted incomes at the lower end of the uh, economics and education scale. So it achieved its objectives at the cost of some level of growth and trade negotiation, because it kind of, the sort of, the, the tussle with China um, has scrambled supply chains. There's a little bit of clarity with the signing of the USMCA in North America and the and the first phase of the Chinese agreement in, you know, just I think in mid-January. So trade negotiation is less of an anti-growth element than it had been. Immigration control still is an anti-growth element. And uh, the pro-growth elements are still kind of there, but uh, kind of burning their, 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 their way in. Um, and nothing much has happened as infrastructure, education reform, or healthcare reform. Nothing's happened there. When you look at it, I would say it's more like three quarters full, uh, you know, versus a half full than I said in November. What would cause a recession to occur? Well, if you had a sudden increase in inflation, either labor cost inflation or materials cost inflation, that would raise shorter term interest rates. That would cause an inversion. And, and then you'd have a recession. Some significant macroeconomic demand shock, negative demand shock would cause it. Apart from one of those, either of those things, I don't see a – and again, the other thing I do look for constantly is where's the debt bubble, right? Recessions are classically caused by excesses, excess leverage in certain sectors of the economy. So you constantly, in my mind, I'm constantly looking for where's the debt bubble, right? And is it big enough to cause a recession? Right now, one could argue that there's a bit of a debt bubble in uh, consumer auto loans. Eh, not that big a deal. Right, it's not happening in mortgage or real estate. That's that's clearly the case. Is it happening in corporate debt? Yeah, maybe, but they're sophisticated folks. Is it happening to a certain extent in oil? Well, one could argue that that the the factors are a bit overlevered, and uh, the banks are trying to sort of uh, reel them back in. But at fifty five, sixty bucks a barrel, it's not so bad. Um, I don't see again I, when you look around and say, where's the inflation coming from? It's not coming from materials, and it's, it's not coming from oil, okay? And it's not really coming from labor. Uh, if I kind of go back a further point, not really coming back from labor. You know, rent actually, rent, real estate is the, uh, is, the is a, quite frankly, a bit of a driver of whatever inflation we do have uh, because of, quite uh, frankly, regulatory constraints to supply and, and the cost of materials and, and labor. Uh, that's that's, that's kind of hard uh, to for new supply to enter the market. So I don't really see inflation cracking over two. I don't see it from the material side. I don't see it from the labor side. I read some interesting papers, by the way, that one of the issues we kind of are, are scratching all our head about is 
with all this labor shortage, why aren't labor unit costs going up? Well, the fact of the matter is the workforce is older, is less likely to move, is reasonably productive. So there is wage inflation at the bottom end of the scale. Wages at the bottom end are going up 5%, but it's not enough to offset people who are retiring at, at higher wage rates and slower wage growth uh, at, uh, among, among older workers. So even, right, we, and we've had a long history of services inflation with goods deflation, and that seems to play out. Now, long story is the multifamily, not a macroeconomic piece, but the, the basic point is if you understand the basic sort of lay of the land, right, interest rates lower for longer, not really no big uh, inflationary pressure, then income-producing real estate looks really good, right? Because <laughs> you're not going to get a repricing on the value of the asset, and that's the way you know real estate works. And generally, you've got growing incomes. So that's the the, the basis of not believing not believing that there's going to be a recession kind of upcoming immediately. We always, you know, we're going to eventually have a recession, but I don't see the basis of the pressures that would give rise to that, at least for the next 18 months or more. Got it. Got it. So uh, primary would be the uh, political climate is what you are saying is could be where we are, we might be causing, you know, some of these uh, potential recession. It depends on who's, what's the policy and you don't see any other yeah. big risk, I guess, right? In any other. So I mean, so James, you're in you're in Texas, right? Austin, is that correct? Austin, Texas. Yeah, yeah. So your your state and your city is the beneficiary of misguided policies in other places. Okay, the growth in population, the growth in tech centers, is really occurring in the South and the West. It's not to say that. Uh, New York, San Francisco, L.A. are not wonderful places, uh, have very deep uh, tech hubs and tech ecosystems. But what's generally happening is that when a business decides it wants to scale, it doesn't scale in California. It can't. It doesn't scale in New York. Uh, it scales outside. Now, that's not to say that Google is, not, is building a big footprint in New York City to access that labor pool. That's uh, not to say that there are large... Uh, tech firms uh, that are, uh, you know, uh, just yesterday, I think uh, Google was trying to, uh, in a Wall Street Journal, get uh, San Jose, basically redevelop the city of San Jose downtown uh, as, as an employment and uh, commercial center. But the fact of the matter is the cost of housing uh, and expansion is so difficult in these, you know, major gateway cities that places that are business friendly and have a uh, intellectual capital infrastructure like Austin uh, or, uh, are growing quite rapidly. Ross, Austin, Raleigh, uh, Atlanta, Denver, Phoenix, Salt Lake City. These are places where uh, the, the tech infrastructure and talent is expanding. Uh, Texas is a beneficiary of having a great uh, business climate. And so population, population is moving, uh, as one would expect. Population's moving, okay, domestically. Vegas, Austin, Phoenix, Raleigh, Charlotte, Nashville, Orlando, Dallas, Denver. You know, these are places that are, have significant domestic in-migration. If you look at the other, I'll call it gateway cities, they have a significant amount of domestic out-migration. And in the past, they really were covered by international immigration. Now, that as coming down, 
a population in the U.S. is growing at seven tenths. I think now six tenths of a percent. You know, these these cities over here are growing quite rapidly, and Austin is one of the beneficiaries of that. Got it. Got it. So, what about? I mean, in the beginning, you mentioned about the cities. You know, just outside of California, right? Like Phoenix and yeah. Las Vegas is a beneficiary of people moving out to California. And why is that? Why is it, why is that driving? Why not they come to Florida or Texas? Why is Phoenix and Las Vegas, which had a huge uh, cycle in the past crash, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, it went from you yeah. know, so high to so down. Why are they yeah. benefiting right now? So if you think about it, both in New York and in California, you have a hollowing out of the middle, okay? And if you're extraordinarily wealthy, let's go convert this to almost uh, apartment investment discussion. Mm-hmm. Because of the structure of the economy, if you can build a Class A property in Northern or Southern California, you should continue to build it. It will continue to get occupied because there's a, a reasonable number of people that are continuing to expand at the very high end of the market. Got it. Conversely, at the very low end of the market, it is a draw for people from uh, around the world who want to get a start in the United States. But if you're in the middle of the income stream, then your life isn't that great and your costs are quite high. And you, and you, you can improve your quality of life by going someplace not too far from where you are. You know, if you look at, at California, the people streaming out of California, Boise, Salt Lake, Phoenix, Las Vegas, and yes, companies are moving all the way to Dallas, okay? Uh, but there's a steady stream of the middle income, and I would say low income. I mean, we'll call it fifty to 150000 a year, um, educated, uh, skilled, but not at the highest level, you know, not the half million dollar a year kind of thing, or $300,000 a year, but right there in the, in the middle. Now, the same thing is happening uh, coming out of the New York metropolitan area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and that's streaming into the Cal- Carolinas and into Florida. That's what's happening. Orlando had a little bit of a bump from Puerto Rican immigration. There's pretty much people streaming out of there. And if you're talking about people leaving Chicago, they're going more to the Tampa where they where they used to go for, for winters. Uh, the, the New Yorkers are going to the Gold Coast and the people in Chicago go to the Gulf Coast uh, and then sort of and down to the Carolinas as well. And the Carolinas, Georgia, and so forth. This is just the where, look at the numbers. Look at where the people are coming from. I mean, it's, it's in the numbers. It's in the cost structure. Certainly, the the tax bill uh, that you know, went into effect in 2018 is pushing people at the margin on a slow roll kind of basis, adding a little extra push to what's been going on otherwise. And so, when I look at where the population's growing, where the new supply is going, you know, where you know intellectual capital is moving, this is what I see. That's what I see, and that's where, from an investment standpoint. Um, my own view is you want to be in places where the tide is rising. It's easier to make money uh, where the tide is rising and populations are growing and, and the economy is boosting incomes than it is to kind of swim upstream. Uh, I'm not saying you can't make money in Buffalo or Syracuse or Cleveland, but it's tougher. It's tougher. Tougher. Yep. Yep. So, Jeff, I have a question in terms of the rising um I mean, the cap rates comprising the price uh, of buying an apartment uh, nowadays as reason. Uh, if you look at Texas, uh, in Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio, and, and I think everywhere, right? I think everywhere across the nation, right. it used to be 50 a door, you know, to buy an apartment. Now it has gone like 80 to 100, and in some places, 120, 130 a door. 
even for a class B and C properties, right? So how does that make sense? Because you can construct new class A with that similar cost, right? Like 100, 110, you should oh, be- no, no, actually you can't. And that, that is the entire point. Uh, because of restriction, again, we're obviously talking about the city and which part of the neighborhood, but mm-hmm. uh, the fact of the matter is that construction costs have risen significantly and regulatory burdens have risen significantly, particularly in kind of urban cores. So that the cost of constructing new product is higher. Now, there is a lot of work being attempted to bring down the construction costs through prefabrication, through potentially regulatory streamlining, but it's 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 not as easy as it seems, and there's a lot of institutional resistance to it. I've spent a whole year trying to help crack the sort of affordability code, and it's literally just buried in a swamp. I mean, it's just it's ugly. So can you build, you know? If a city planner will let you build essentially what was 80s product on sort of suburban ex-urban land, right? Then yeah, you can deliver it at you know maybe eighty, a hundred thousand dollars a door, okay? But it's very hard to do so, and as a result, right? So if you think about values, values are driven by two things: one, what's the next best alternative, and two, our incomes our incomes growing, which increases the value of the asset. In multifamily, you have both of these dynamics happening. One, because of the general shortage of housing and and the higher cost of adding capacity, rents are rising, revenues are rising. So if rents are going up 3%, NOIs are easily going up 5 to 6 Okay. Plus, given the fact that interest rates are lower for longer and there's capital streaming into it that is saying, well, my, 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 you know, my cost of capital is lower and all the institutions which was which started this cycle 10 to 11 years ago only in the urban you know sexy six all of them are spreading out all over the country and they're bringing their lower cost of capital with them and their lower return expectations that is having an impact on values a third component i would i would also argue that kind of fills into the second one is that as cities grow and develop and i would say austin is an example austin has become an institutional grade capital city. 20 years ago, it wasn't. You had opportunistic capital, but now it is. So what that tends to, as the city changes its nature and becomes more broadly diversified and more accepted as having a broader economic base, institutions with lower costs of capital and lower return expectations now make it appropriate for investment and they drive up values. It's kind of tied up in the second one that I discussed. So multifamily is really in a situation where Yes, values are going up. The real question you have to ask yourself is, what does the future hold, right? Are the conditions under which the fact that that values went up, are those likely to continue or are they likely to end? Um, And like I almost hit myself over the head. I don't see how they end, right? So suddenly is our, you know, admittedly, we always expected the homeownership rate would, would increase a little bit. And it's, I think it's up to 65%. Uh, but it's down from 69, but up from 63. And we are going through a period of time where you know, the millennials are getting older and they will want to live in uh, basically the, the amenity. If they, have, if they have had children more than one, they are more likely to want to live in the suburbs uh, in better school districts, which is in the historical pattern. But be that as it may, demographics are still very much people are renting for, for longer. They're getting married later. They're having fewer children. All that is elongating the, um, the rental period initially. And then um, as people are 
living longer and living healthier. They are selling the house and then moving back downtown in a multifamily asset. The one asset class you really have to worry about is very large suburban homes that are just that are sort of ex-urban. Go to Fairfield County, Connecticut. You can buy a big estate for a relatively speaking a song. Nobody wants to live there. The taxes are too high. It's too hard to get to New York. And there's no reason to be there anymore. That asset class is going to experience some real problems. But if you're near an employment center with a modest sized home or apartment, you're going to do okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't see, you don't see anything in the horizon. As long as you buy it right, you buy an employment center, you know, you, are, you should be good from what we see, right? right. That, that looks pretty good. So yeah, that's when someone says, okay, the careful thing you have to be at, worry about excess leverage and overpaying, right? That, that's the biggest problem one has to be concerned with right now is there will be a recession. I don't know when, but you do not want to be in a situation where you are squeezed out during a recession because you're overlevered and you have a debt maturity and and you basically you get you get pushed out of a great long-term investment. That's the biggest concern. So let's say we have a, a recession right now, right? So the rents are going to drop, right? So if you have a long yeah. term, if you have a long-term loan, you should be able to ride and you should have some cushion in your operation right. in terms of cash flow, right? But That's one right. One trick that has happened, not say one trick, one thing that has happened that what I realized in 2015 onwards, there used to be a lot of interest-only loan uh, start being given out by lenders after 2015. I don't know. That's that's what I feel. I, I know I used to be very hard to get even one-year IO loan in 2015. And now it's like so easy to get three to five years IO loan, right? So is the lenders... Yeah has made it easier for people to buy and extend this expansion boom? Yes. They, I mean, so, they, so what they're doing is in order to sort of compete to get the loans, while they're not reducing the LTV percentage, they are allowing you to go IO and not pay down the principal, which effectively you know, helps you pay more. Okay, <laughs> That's what it does because you're – you have time for the, uh, the 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 rents to to rise, right? So that by the time the loan comes due, you can refinance it, do okay. So certainly, you know, if you can and, and if you can get an, an IO loan for three to five years, and, and increasingly you can, fantastic, right? If you're sixty five percent levered, you can ride out a five or six percent reduction in rents that do occur in a, in a recession, okay. Obviously, the reduction in rents will be higher at the Class A level than the Class B. So Class B has got some more insulation. Value-add assets right now are priced to beyond perfection. So a lot of folks are basically saying, particularly in the institutional level, 150 units and higher, 90s or 2,000 vintages, a lot of the folks I talk to are just saying, there's no, it's not worth it. It, the, the, The price is... Uh, are basically, I'm, I'm going to work for somebody else. I'm, I'm paying them all the profits from their value add. There's no point. There's no point doing the work. So they're going back to uh, called core core plus, or kind of just building new again because those are the better returns compared to value add. So value add you can still make work, but you may have to sort of go under 50 units. You may have to do something to avoid 
the institutional capital pressure uh, on values. And I saw about a year and a half ago Prudential saying they were suddenly going to enter the value add space. You know, by the way, I love Prudential; they're great people. But it's kind of like run for the hills, man, because they're going into a value add place where you know there's renovation risk, and that's not something they usually price to, right? They usually price to kind of hold, a buy and hold deal. So they're not the only uh, institution. A lot of institutions have found value add, but they found it as usual a tad late. Got it. Got it. So I want to come back to the high leverage uh, comment that you made. So on a value add deal, usually even though you buy at a 1.25 BSCR, right? So for example, most of the banks gives us a loan at 1.25. But when you do value add, that 1.25 could be 1.85, 1.5 a couple of years. Even though you're well, when not- you're done. You know, when you're when you're done, it's a yeah. once you're done, you're so basically from now you're getting until- at a 1.25 ingoing, right? With the expectation that you'll invest and 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 raise the rents, and then you'll be at a 1.75 when it's time to to cash up. But my point being is, but if you're paying a lot and you're not getting a big pop in the rents relative to what you paid, then that 1.25 may not move high enough to cover the risk. Remember, there, there's Doing a value add, as anyone, I'm sure you and other other people know, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it's you, you, you know you got to sweat for it. You got there's a lot of sweat to make a value add work. It's not just you know it just doesn't uh, show up on its own. And I've seen a lot of value adds go horribly wrong because you know people didn't get the ducks in a, in, in a row. So it takes skill to do one. But the fact of the matter is, a value add is really, from a public policy standpoint, an indictment of the inability of supply to expand to meet the needs of upper income renters. Because that's really what happens. What ends up happening is because there's not enough supply at the upper end, value add is a, is a near price substitute for new, for new supply. It also happens to withdraw supply from the lowest income consumers. That is what it does because you don't add new supply at the bottom end of the scale. One could argue that the rent control in New York and rent control as executed in California are essentially a rebellion against value-add. In New York, they basically wiped out the value-add trade entirely. And in California, they they basically uh, changed the value-add from a maybe a two- to three-year exercise to a seven- to eight-year exercise. Okay? But, but remember, they didn't say... You know, it, it, it's it's very difficult to build in any one of these locations to get through all the permitting and the environmental zoning and all those other kind of garbage. But they're not stopping luxury housing. What they're trying to do is stop the value-add trade because there's no structure to add supply in the middle to the bottom end of the stack. And the fact of the matter is that the public policy response is short-term in nature. So rather than solving the root cause, they are they are basically, you know, kind of putting a band-aid on the symptom. And that's unfortunate. It's bad public policy, but I don't see it changing. That's very interesting. Never heard about, you know, looking at that perspective that, uh, you know, it's basically uh, going against value add in that city. So that's why the rent control. But you absolutely make sense. So I want to yeah. ask, before we end, uh, because we're almost to the end, uh, I want to ask a few more um, scenarios, right, that may cause impact to the apartment. And you can answer it quickly and, and uh, you know, short, right? Sure, and I've got to go. Yeah. Fannie and Fra- Freddie Mac uh, becoming private, what could that be impacting? It really, you know, obviously the intent is for there to be no impact, right? 
their current program of current capacity of 20 billion a quarter each without any kind of the green exceptions has kind of, I would say, calmed the market. So it's always been profitable. It's in the most profitable part of the, the GSEs. There is, I think, the NMHC and NAA have done a fine job communicating to Congress the fact that multifamily isn't the problem, okay? Uh, that it was that the, the blow up was in single family housing underwriting. So, to, and if you look at Brickman, David Brickman became head of Freddie, and he came out of the multifamily industry. Okay, he was in charge of multifamily for Freddie. Now he's in charge of all of Freddie. Okay, so I, I, in my mind, that kind of bodes well because, at least from Freddie and Fannie, they know how to make money doing what they do for for multifamily. I mean, they make money. They know how to make money. It's always been profitable. Uh, they could rebuild their capital cushions relatively quickly. I think the issue will continue to be how does Freddie and Fannie support uh, single-family home ownership without pushing too so hard on on um, home ownership that it blows it up like the last time. So, you know, how can they retain their underwriting criteria? Uh, the fact of the matter is, should they be differentially pricing by market? for single family. They don't really do that. They don't do that for multifamily much either. Uh, they are supporting their their mandate. And really, if you think about it, uh, Freddie and Fannie's mandate is to supply multifamily capital where the life insurance companies or other places won't go, which really is the, you know, the middle of the stack of smaller to mid-sized markets, class B assets. It's one of the reasons why Freddie and Fannie don't do construction lending, right? They say that's a commercial bank's business. It's not our business. And so I'm optimistic that it'll all work out okay. It absolutely has been a tremendous boon to the multifamily industry to have Freddie and Fannie because it basically puts a a, a very a lot of stability into asset pricing. And, and, but I think it's quite recognized. So I'm hopeful that that won't cause disruption. Got it. How is China's economy slowdown could impact the uh, U.S. economy and multifamily? The fact of the matter is the U.S. economy is mostly driven by uh, services, right? And the the dynamic and and technology services in in particular. So if you think about, you know, the recent trade spats, which really slowed and began separating the economies, the places that got hurt had a manufacturing or um, agricultural bent to them. Minneapolis, classic example, right? Their, even their urban jobs were tied to those sectors and then they lost employment. I don't think it's a tremendous problem. The fact that there's excess capacity in China, for example, means that goods costs will be even less. So there'll be less inflationary pressure on goods. What we sell to the Chinese are primarily agricultural goods. That's what we sell. And anything else ends up being um, produced there with our intellectual capital. I think according to the trade agreement, they'll buy some more agricultural goods, which will help rural areas, but they weren't big multifamily centers anyway, so it doesn't really have an impact. Uh, And for manufacturing centers, those were pretty much, you know, manufacturing takes a lot of land. That occurs in ex-urban and rural areas where rents are low. Multifamily, where it's done well, is where it's tied to intellectual capital and technology that drives down costs globally. So all in all, I don't think much. 
That's what I'd tell you. Got it. Got it. Just one piece of advice on how to be prepared uh, as we move forward and you know, for and in case there's a recession, you know, what kind of uh, what would you advise uh, Parman investors uh, that already own a property or you know going to buy a property? First, one should mind the pennies. Okay, uh, this is a relatively speaking low margin business. So there is increasingly um, systems and technology available to sort of the squeeze expenses down. So the way one prepares for recession is always to really look at your cost structure and re-examine what you're spending money on in a very meaningful way. It is to sort of be mindful of your leverage and model up what happens if your rents go down five or six percent. Remember, they won't happen all at once, right? What you'll see is the new lease, new leases will go negative, renewals will hang together, uh, you will have a higher skip in a VIC rate. So you kind of need to model out what happens to you, right, in in, an, in, a, in a recession. I don't think it would be a, a big one, but it will be a mild one. What happens? Are you prepared? Do you have a cash flow reserve? Uh, have you spoken to your investors and your lenders already about what you would do? Are you prepared? I mean, I'm chairman of a ULI council, and uh, our council members about – a year ago, we went through a recession planning exercise. Right? What kind of ex- what kind of recession are we going to have, and what are you going to plan for right now? And so, every one of the organizations that I was working with had had a recession scenario plan in place about a year ago. Not that they had to execute on it, but everyone had one. What I've experienced in all of now, I've seen through four or five uh, recessions and a big blowout, is you need to have a plan. You need to be prepared. You need to have, in a, in a calm moment, have thought through what you're going to do. Because in the moment, in the crisis, uh, your, your brain just doesn't work that well. Okay? Yeah. Under that kind of stress, uh, you, you just you don't think it through. So I would argue, whatever organization size you are, if it's just you and your spouse or, or you and a small group of investors, Spend the time now to come up with a recession plan. Put it to paper. Talk about it. And then begin asking on the steps that you can take right now uh, to prepare yourself. Again, I hope you don't have to do it, right? But waiting and and hoping it'll never happen and not being prepared for it is a surefire way uh, to not be able to capitalize on it. And we had a great session from Clyde Holland, who basically, he capitalized on a recession. He's the chairman of Holland Partners. Clyde's a great guy. And he basically, in he saw something bad coming in 07. He basically slashed costs, built a lot of dry powder, and basically waited to pounce and came out of the recession incredibly strong. Now, I don't think we'll see another recession like that one for another 80 years. Uh, the recessions we're going to see are more like the typical, you know, post-World War II recessions. But you can get yourself prepared. And you can be ready to act. And with that, James, I got to run. It's been a real joy speaking with you today. Take care now. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audio book. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audio book completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. 
To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.